0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Yes, amen. Thank you, Mrs. Poe. Guys, good morning. How are you doing? It's uh, it's good to be with everyone today. If we haven't met, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we're wrapping up our three-week series on masculine virtue. And a couple of things I'll mention to you before we pray and dive in. Uh, We just posted this week to our website and to a website that we just uh, put together called masculinevirtue.net all of the resources from our men's conference two weeks ago. So I know some of you guys have been asking about that. That has all the talks, all the breakouts, the creed that we prayed together, and our confession and assurance. So you can grab that, that week, this week and look at it, and uh, I hope that serves you, I hope that helps you. <clears throat> in addition to that, um, I just wanna take a moment and just pause and thank God for the things he's doing in our church. This has been, this has been the richest opening to a new year that I've ever experienced in 18 years of pastoring here. Um, The amount of transformation that God is working in our church is so encouraging. And any time that God's doing a work of revival and renewal, that also comes with resistance and pushback and spiritual warfare. But in the midst of all that, man, I am so thankful that you guys are doing hard work and you're leaning into the Holy Spirit and God's at work in our church. So we want to give him praise for that. We're thankful for that. And so if you're new, really glad that you're here. I hope you grabbed the last two weeks of sermons because today flows out of what we covered for two weeks. Um, I'm going to pray for you. You guys pray for me, and we'll dive in and do work. Uh, Fathers, we sang one of my favorite hymns today. Together, we said, "Let let the Amen sound from your people again." And uh, Lord, that's my desire. I, my desire is that when we open your Word, when we see your character, when we see your nature, when we hear your invitation that we would say in response to you with the help of your spirit, so be it. God, one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible is Mary hearing the message of the angel and her saying, let it be unto me according to your word. So I just pray today, God, that you would give us grace to receive what you have for us. And Lord, this is one of those topics and sermons where we need more than just intellectual assent. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to make the love of the Father real in our lives. We need you to take what we believe doctrinally about the gospel and make it experiential. God, we need men and women formed by love so that we can be your hands and feet. And we need the places that we hold back from you. Places where we're weak and broken and fearful and sinful. We need those places to be brought into the presence of your love so that we can be changed. So Lord, I thank you that you're setting a table for us today. That you're here to feed us and minister to us and help us. And uh, even in the midst of having a cold and feeling my limitations, I thank you that you're not limited. So would you do everything you want to do today? And we pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Guys, if there was one message that I could give for the rest of my life, this would be it. If there's one thing that I could talk about until they put me in the ground, this would be it. Uh, If there's one thing that I want to embody and believe with every fiber of my being, this is it. For the last couple of weeks, we've been speaking to men. And we've been talking about masculine virtue. We've talked about being watchmen like Jesus. And we've talked about standing in courage and strength like Jesus. And those things are really important. They're really beautiful, and they're really true. But without today, those things will never happen in your life. In fact, today is the boiler room of all true masculine virtue. This is the furnace. This is where the life and the heat that God wants to warm your family and your neighbors and your church through is established. And I want to say today up front that like all of the last couple of talks, um, everything that we're going to discuss today has its own application for ladies. Ladies, uh, there's nothing you need more desperately than to know the love of your Heavenly Father, to know that you are beloved, to know that you're chosen. But in the vein of what we've done for the last three weeks, my focus today will be trying to apply God's word to the masculine soul. What does it mean to be a man that lets all that he does be done in love? And I want to start by saying this is deeper than just doing loving stuff. There's a way in which we can do loving things. We can provide and we can serve and we can sacrifice and still miss the mark of abiding in love. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. If I give away all I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Our text today that invites men to do all we do in love is more than just doing external loving activities. It's more than just providing for our families, although that's essential. It's more than just speaking words that build up instead of tear down, although that's essential. Our text today gets to the very heart of the difference between improvement and transformation. And all around us, we have voices of improvement. Life coaches abound. Instructional videos abound. There are self-help books that line the shelves of every single bookstore. And there's places where those voices can be really helpful. There's things that we need to learn to improve ourselves. Amen? But listen, the heartbeat of Christianity is not improvement. It's not incremental external change. The heartbeat of the gospel, what Jesus came to die for, is not a little bit of improvement or self-help. It's complete and total renovation of the totality of your life. And that happens through the love of God. That happens when we encounter his love. And so if we're going to be watchful instead of being loveless warlords as men, if we're going to be men of courage instead of cowardice, if we're going to be men that build our lives on the faith once for all delivered instead of quicksand, if we're going to be men that are strong and don't abuse or abdicate, all of that finds its source, its power, its life, and its heat In learning to abide in the love of our Heavenly Father, it's all found in realizing the love of God through the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a man's journey of transformation, that is a journey, it is a journey. That man's journey of transformation is about being brought to the love of the Father through the work of Jesus. And experiencing the love of the Father day in and day out through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as foundational as this is to the heartbeat of Christianity, as core as this is to the gospel, it's kind of amazing how historically we tend to miss the work of the Father, His work to father us, and to lead us to become fathers. Fathers. And when I talk about becoming fathers, I'm talking about more than just biology, although that's beautiful and reflects our heavenly Father. I'm talking about the work of God to shape us by his love to such a degree that men grow over the course of a lifetime to look like their heavenly Father, to reflect his character and his mercy and his goodness and his holiness, to be the kind of men, to be the kind of men that are merciful, Because our heavenly father is merciful to be the kind of men that are gentle because our heavenly father is gentle to be the kind of men that are present with our families because our heavenly father is present with us. And so today's sermon is it's kind of simple, but it's also simple in the kind of deep way that we'll never get tired of talking about. It's simple in the kind of way that the ocean's simple. You can describe the ocean as a body of water, and you can also spend your entire life not plumbing the depths of it. So what I want to do today is really simple, but it's really important. I want to do two things. This is a two-point sermon. I want to talk to you about the Father and his only begotten Son. I want to talk to you about how Jesus reveals the heart of his Father. And then secondly, I want to talk to you about the Father and his adopted sons, What does it look like to be made sons through the work of Jesus? So if you've got a Bible, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Matthew 3 and Galatians 4 today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, you can grab one from the windowsills downstairs and take that with you as a gift. Two points. Number one, we're going to look at the Father and his only begotten Son Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 describe the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus coming to be baptized by his cousin John in the river Jordan. Here's what the Bible tells us in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. In this moment, before Jesus preaches a single sermon, before Jesus has done a miracle in his earthly ministry, before Jesus has squared off with the enemy in the wilderness, before Jesus goes to the cross to accomplish our, our redemption, and before Jesus is raised from the dead, before he's done any of those acts that are essential for his calling as the Messiah, in this moment, what we have is the father affirming his identity as beloved son. Before Jesus does any of the things that the father sent him to do, the father thunders with delight and he says, this is my son that I treasure and that I love. This is my son that belongs to my affection. And I love this because this is foundational for everything that Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to preach, he's going to heal, he's going to cast out demons, he's going to suffer, he's going to be tempted and victorious, he's going to die in our place for our sins, and he's going to be raised from the dead, all on the foundation of his identity as a beloved son who the father treasures and loves. This is the source of Jesus's courage as he faces people that hate his guts. This is the source of Jesus' compassion when he looks at the crowds and he's moved to help them. This is the source of Jesus' prophetic edge as he constantly says what the Father is saying and does what the Father is doing. This is the ground for Jesus' trust, for his surrender, and for his obedience. If you want to understand Jesus in the garden who prays to his Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be the object of wrath for the sake of sinners. If there's any other way to accomplish redemption, please let plan B unfold. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. This is the source of that kind of obedience. And what we find is that Jesus experiences in his humanity the fullness of the Father's love through the Holy Spirit. There's a one-two punch that's happening in this text. There is the affirmation of the father that he speaks to his son. And then there's the spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on Jesus. This is a picture of the spirit's work to take the love of the father and make it known in the depths of Jesus's being as the son of God. And what we find is that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives his entire life, his three years of ministry, his labor, his fighting, his watching, his loving, his laying down of all of his rights for our blessing and benefit, it's all found through what the Father says and through the Spirit of God helping Jesus in his humanity to abide in that love. Jesus, as the embodiment of perfect masculinity, is the perfect watchman, the perfect watchman who resists the world and the flesh and the evil one. Jesus, like no other man that's ever lived in the history of the world, was courageous and strong for the blessing and benefit of others. And Jesus did all of that because he so knew the love of his father as his bedrock foundation. Now, let's pause here because I can hear the objections. I have it in my own heart so frequently. Like, of course, of course the father affirms Jesus. Of course he does. Jesus is the only begotten son of the father. And Jesus is sinless. Jesus is sinless. Of course the father can thunder from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased And I want to start by saying that's true. Jesus is the son of the father in ways that none of us will ever be sons or daughters of the father. He's the unique, only begotten son of the father. Uh, One of my favorite writers in a great book called Forgotten Father, written by Thomas Smale, who's a charismatic Anglican. He puts it like this, describing Jesus. Jesus acts with God's authority Because he shares God's being. With the Father, he's the legitimate object of worship. And with the Father is the joint source, as well as the necessary agent of creation, salvation, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. God and man. 100% God. 100% man. And I want to be really clear that you and me brothers have no right to claim sonship through nature or achievement or status before God. And the Bible nowhere, the Bible nowhere proclaims a message of the universal fatherhood of God. Doesn't teach that. Uh, We teach that in Unitarian ripoffs of Christianity. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says at best Left to ourselves, we're sons of Adam, not sons of God. And at worst, brothers, left to ourselves, we're sons of our father, the devil. This is not about universal fatherhood. But what I want you to see today is that this is about the scandal of grace. Grace. The kind of affirmation and experience of the father's love that Jesus lives his entire life with is the very thing that he came to die and to be raised for you and me to experience and live in as adopted sons of our father. What does it mean that the father has adopted sons? Let let me take you to a couple of different verses before we get to Galatians. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew, this is the work of the father, this is the work of the father in eternity past. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hey listen, there's a lot of things we could say about why God initiates the work of our redemption. We could say it's because of his own glory, and that's true. And we could say it's because of his love, and that's true. The Bible mentions both of those things. But the means through which God is going to be glorified and the means through which God is going to lavish his love on his enemies is through this profound work of calling sons into a relationship with their heavenly father through the work of a capital S son that's going to do something to make us those that have been adopted. The purpose of God, the purpose of God is to not just justify us and cleanse us of our sins, it's to justify us, cleanse us of our sins, and adopt us as beloved children. This is what John chapter one's driving at. Let me read you just a couple of verses. But to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, not universal fatherhood, but redemption, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Hey, brothers and sisters, like, we stand in the Reformed tradition. Uh, we, we love so much of what the Reformers taught. And, and one of the things that the Reformers emphasized is our forensic justification. And it, here's all that means. Part of the work of redemption— is that you and me stood in a courtroom as guilty offenders before God the judge. And we couldn't, we couldn't make a case to get ourselves off the hook. We were sinners by nature and choice. And God in his justice and holiness had every right to condemn us in that moment and to give us the wrath that you and me all deserve because we belittled him, we've hurt each other, and we have made a mess of everything that's beautiful, and we've taken God's gifts, and we've tried to reject the giver. And part of the work of redemption is this miraculous thing in which Jesus Christ takes your sin and he takes my sin on the cross. He that knew no sin became sin for you and me. And he, Jesus Christ, not only took our sins, but in an offer of lavish, astounding grace, he grants us the righteousness of Jesus so that we can stand in the courtroom of God's holiness and because of the work of Jesus by grace through faith in him alone not our deeds, not penance, not our track record, not your resume, but because of grace alone, God can drop the gavel and he can declare you and me forgiven, forgiven, all of our debts paid. But listen, why do we as Christians stop there as if that was the only metaphor of our redemption? Like, we don't just stand in the courtroom for all eternity as forgiven sinners. Something else happens in the work of redemption. God purposed from the very beginning that he wouldn't just justify us and cleanse us, removing our guilt and our shame, but he would also in that moment, as judge, not ceasing to be judge, also walk off the bench in the courtroom and come and put his robe on you and put his ring on your finger and invite you home to his dining room table as a son. That's the scandal of redemption. You're not just forgiven and left to your own devices. Listen, like... I would preach my entire life and I would give my life for a gospel that simply said, We were forgiven of our sins through the cross of Jesus, and now we get to be God's servants or slaves. That would be good news. That would be good news. To move from being his enemies who were facing down an eternity away from him under his wrath to be made slaves would be amazing, more than we deserve. But listen, the heartbeat of the gospel is not just that he forgave our sins and made us servants. The heartbeat of the gospel is that Jesus's work brings us into the wonder of adoption as sons and as daughters that the father delights in through the work of Jesus, that have been given an inheritance through the work of Jesus, that have a place at his dining room table through the work of Jesus. When we talk about men being exhorted in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, to let all we do be done in love, it's not just talking about our activity or our motives, it's talking about a life that is built in abiding in the love of a father who's adopted us and who has brought us near through Jesus. Flip over to Galatians chapter 4, and remember what happens at the baptism of Jesus, The Father affirms his delight in his unique, only begotten Son. And then the Spirit of God descends to make that identity an experiential reality in the life of Jesus. But look what happens in Galatians chapter 4, describing the work of redemption. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Okay, this thing that the spirit of God does through the finished work of Jesus in helping hearts cry, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Well, Abba is the language of the household, It's the language that Jesus would have used to speak to his father in Aramaic. It's not saying daddy, but it is a term of affection and intimacy. And what Paul is saying in Galatians is that the work of redemption is not just a forensic work that frees us from the chains of our guilt. It's also a familial work that brings us into fellowship with our father and delight in our father, as we receive his delight in us. Here's the thing that's crazy. And, and it's not lost on me that I still don't fully believe this and that a lot of you in this room don't believe this at all, The heart of what Jesus did is to bring you into a relationship with the Father where the same kind of affection and delight and affirmation that he showers on his unique only begotten son is offered to you as you're adopted into the family of God through Jesus' death in your place. And I get, man, like, there's tons of gaps in my life. There's gaps in how I currently love my wife and how I want to love my wife. There's gaps in how I've raised my kids and how I would raise my kids if I got a (laughs) do-over. There's gaps in the way that I serve as a pastor today and how I hope I serve as a pastor when I'm 60. There's tons of gaps in my life. There's belief gaps, there's obedience gaps, there's gaps in character, there's flaws I see when I look in the mirror, but here's the scandal of God's grace for me and his grace for you. If you're in Jesus, the Father, in all of your imperfections, in all of your weakness, because of his grace, looks at you and says, you're my beloved son. I love you. I know your weakness and your sinfulness and your brokenness. I know the ways that you're prone to wander, and I still choose you, and I still delight in you, and I'm still pleased to be with you. There was a word that God gave my friend Corey Faringcamp prophetically last night through a dream. And it was just a reminder of all the times where Corey got to play catch with his son, Wyatt. Uh, I love Wyatt. He's my son's best friend. And in the dream, uh, Corey just remembered Wyatt as a little kid playing catch in the backyard and Corey throwing the ball to Wyatt and Wyatt as a little guy, maybe one out of 10 times getting the ball back to his dad's mitt. And every time the ball falling short and Wyatt saying, oh, sorry, dad. And Corey telling him in that moment, hey man, you don't have to be sorry, we're playing catch together. I'm enjoying your presence, and I'm not expecting you as a four-year-old to throw the ball like a 20-year-old. I'm just glad that I get to be with you, and that you're throwing the ball to me at all. Brothers, there's places we need to grow, there's places we need to mature. The Father does not call us to make treaties or truces with sin in our life, but in the midst of all the things that are not yet resolved in who you are as a man, here's the foundation of your identity. You're a son. You're a son. And here's something crazy. Here's something wild. The love your father has for you in this moment right now with all the gaps in your life is not lesser than the love he'll have for you when you see Jesus face to face and are glorified. That's something that's done, it's finished, it's now. And the father, the father is committed to fathering you, to fathering you. That means he's going to discipline you. He's going to train you. He's going to shape you. He's going to form you. He's going to pour out his spirit in your life to convict you, to move you. There's places that he's going to invite you to grow. There's times he's going to discipline you and rebuke you. But here's what's wild. None of that is the work of punitive rejection. Jesus took all the punishment. There's no punishment for you. It's the work of a father who delights in a son so much that he's willing to discipline and train him to grow up to reflect the character of his father. And this work of the Holy Spirit, this work of the Holy Spirit is the work to take what's true doctrinally in our heads Because I think like if we did a class and we had a bunch of the guys in our church sit down and talk about adoption and justification, I think we could get a lot of this right on paper. I think we would probably have decent theology that we've been made sons of the Father through the work of the Son. But the gap in your life where we don't experience that and believe that as a deeper knowing is the work of the Holy Spirit to call your heart into the prayer of Jesus, Abba, Father. Tozer once said that uh, knowledge by acquaintance is always greater than knowledge by description. And like, I want you to experience knowledge by description. I want you to know the attributes of God, the character of God. I want you to hear about other men and women's experience with God. That all matters, that's all good. But the thing that becomes fuel to love your kids well, to discipline them in patience, to not provoke them to anger, The thing that is going to move you into increasingly loving your wife like Jesus loves the church, sacrificially and gently. The thing that's going to move you towards brothers when you want to hide. The thing that's going to help you stand and be resilient and set your face like flint to the task that God's given you even when people hate you, criticize you, and accuse you. All of that is found when the truth of God's word, when the doctrine of that points to God's character becomes a part of the depths of your soul where you believe it, not just here, but you believe it here. And I don't want to make a false dichotomy because God loves your mind and God also loves the depths of your affection. And what we need as men in our current moment is to be men whose minds are renewed to know what's ours in Jesus, but also men who are experiencing increasing fillings with God the Holy Spirit so that we can know the love of God, not just as a math equation, but as a real internalized delight in the fact that he loves you and he's with you. To hear his voice and to respond and to know that he's with you and for you the things we've talked about the last couple of weeks are really important. They get to the heart of what a man does in the world. A Man is to be a watchman. A man is to stand firm in the faith. A man is to be courageous and strong. Those are things that we do in the world. But listen, let all you do be done in love gets to the essence of your being as a man. And what the Bible wants for you and what the Bible wants for me is for us to live out of a new identity as sons. You are chosen by your father. You are loved by your father. You are named by your father. You're delighted in by your father. And listen, all the ways that that's been twisted and marred by absent dads and by bad dads, and even by good dads who, like all dads, have failed in some place. All of those are places where what you need desperately is to hear the voice of your Heavenly Father and to have God the Holy Spirit take the truth of your identity in Jesus and make it a part of the depths of your guts. To live your life, to live your life with a new identity means crazy things for men, crazy things. Jesus, knowing his identity in the Father, meant he was free to risk. If you know your identity as a son of the Father, you'll be free to risk as well. Knowing your identity means that you're free to be disliked. Hey, hey brothers, can you just imagine for a moment the liberation you'd experience if you didn't live your life like you were, up for vote? Like if you could just know your father loves you and you could be secure in that love and the thing that you could offer every person is simply the one thing that you're required to offer them in light of scripture, which is love. Not performance, not, hey, which way is the wind blowing? To live out of your identity means that you can stop performing and pretending. It means that you can Fail. Like, uh, in the last chapter of my son moving out of our house and getting launched into the world, the thing that I kept wanting to talk to him about is like, hey, man, you are so loved by your Heavenly Father. You're so secure in his love. He so delights in you. You can risk and you can fail, and that doesn't change any of your standing before him. So why not go for it? Why not go for it? Why not go big with the things that you feel like God's called you to do? What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, you'd fail, and in your failure, you'd experience more of God forming and shaping you. In your secure identity as a son, you're invited as a man to do things that all men want to do, but in a different way. It's a good thing for a man to achieve and to strive and to yearn and to grow and to accomplish. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. In fact, if one one of the things that I've been praying for the men of our church is that instead of having no ambition, my prayer is that we would have godly ambition. Make the most of your gifts. Go for it. Swing hard. (laughs) Whatever your capacities are, max them out. If you've got a couple of talents that have been entrusted to you, Invest those talents. If you got five talents that have been invested to you, don't hide them. Go big with them. But identity as a son means that you can achieve and strive and yearn and grow and accomplish all rooted in the perfect and complete acceptance and love of your Father in the work of Jesus. You're not achieving to earn, you're not achieving to become, you're not striving to be loved. You're called as a man to love and to serve and to achieve and to strive and to grow, all built on the foundation of being completely loved by your Father in heaven and accepted through the work of Jesus. There's a great description of a man shaped by the love of God and what that means for those around him in the 128th Psalm. Let me just read you two verses. It says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And you might think, well, I thought we were talking about love, not fear. Those are complete opposites. No, they're actually not opposites at all theologically. Love and fear before the holiness of God are two sides of the same coin, It's to stand in awe and reverence in his presence and as you stand in awe and reverence to be rooted and grounded in the fact that he's lavished his love on you in Jesus. And when it describes a wife being like a fruitful vine and kids being like olive branches, what it's saying is like, hey, as you receive the love of your heavenly father, what starts to happen is you reflect the love of your heavenly father and you provide shade and encouragement and life and growth to the people around you. This is what I want for the men of our church. I want us to be men rooted and grounded in the love of our father to the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we close today, brothers, I'm going to give you three things. I don't know when I'll get a shot again to preach specifically to the men in the room. So let let me give you these three words as parting shots. Number one, your deepest duty and your deepest delight needs to be knowing the love of God afresh every single day. Every single day. One of the desert fathers, uh, St. Anthony, once wrote... Each day we must say, today I begin again. I like that because that's a reminder that we forget. We forget. And your greatest responsibility as a man, if you're gonna exercise your vocation well, if you're gonna love your wife well, if you're gonna care for the woman that you're dating well, if you're gonna be a father of presence and discipline that's gentle and formative, not harsh and punitive, what you need is every day to be surprised again by the fact that God loves you. To hear his voice again in scripture, to ask for fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit, And here's what's wild. This is really good news. The Bible promises us that the Holy Spirit that helps our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. If you'll ask your father for the Holy Spirit, that's a prayer he's always guaranteed to answer. (laughs) If you ask for the Spirit of God, he's not going to give you a serpent or a stone. You can ask. What would it look like if the men of our church made their number one focus and priority each day to be A reawareness and a reawakening to the fact that God loves you. That today is a day where you get to live and forgive and serve and love and be courageous and keep watch as one that's loved. Second exhortation, brothers, is you and me as men need to learn to stand naked before the love of God. And that may sound funny, but here's what I mean. Um, when, when I'm on top of the mountain, It's easier for me to come into the presence of God or be aware of the presence of God and to receive his love. Man, when I just did a good job loving my wife or loving my kids or loving the church that I serve, those are moments on the mountaintop where it's easy to believe that those kind of successes are the totality of who I am as a man. And it makes it easy in those moments to come to God and say, Hey, aren't you proud of me? Don't you love me? Don't you enjoy me? Aren't I useful to you? But here's what I mean by standing naked before the love of God. We can bring to God the ideal self that we want everybody to think we are, and we can actually not believe that God truly loves us because we know deep down we're not that ideal self. We're also bent, and we're broken, and we're sinful, and we're wounded, and there's places of fear, and there's places of shame, and there's places of guilt. And here's the wild thing about the presence of God. When you bring those things into his presence and you hear his thundering voice from heaven that he loves you, that's fuel for transformation. That's when we start to gain ground in our battle with sin. That's when we start to let the chains of shame fall off of us. That's when we start to have a sobriety of life that you don't have to pretend and play games because God already knows you fully. See, the truth is you're already naked before the love of God. What I'm saying is admit it and come to him in your nakedness and receive what you need, his forgiveness and his healing and his help. And then lastly, brothers, I want you to see that it's the love of your father who transforms you into being a man of love. Like, if you want to define what's the greatest, the greatest single description of godly masculinity as it relates to your roles and responsibilities, ask your ask the question: How has my father loved me? Do you want to figure out how to be a dad? Well, look at how your heavenly father has fathered you, and by his. Grace and in his help and through his Holy Spirit, prayerfully seek to father your kids like that. You want to figure out how to love a woman well over the long haul? Uh, You don't need to go buy another cheesy, bad Christian self-help book. You know what you need? You need to experience the love of God for you that shapes you to love your wife like Jesus loves his bride. If you want to know what it's like to be a good brother, a good friend, a good boss, a good employee. How do you learn these things? Well, you encounter the love of God and you let that love motivate you and shape you and move you towards people so that you can reflect a little bit of your father's heart for you, for the people around you. This is the heartbeat of Christian mission. This is the heartbeat of Christian maturity. So I wanna pray for you. And as we close this series, my my hope today is that we would take time to pray for each other. Um, I think there's a lot of men in this room that need to come forward today and just admit that you don't know the love of God experientially. That you might have good theology. By the way, I don't want you to have less than good theology. I want you to have good theology. Don't build a God that doesn't exist in your imagination and then try to come experience his love because it's gonna get all weird. But like, there's some of you brothers that you have, good, you have good doctrine, but you need the spirit of God to help awaken your heart to the love of God for you. We'd love to pray for you. Um, there's sisters in the room that need to be awakened afresh to how much your father loves you. There's people in the room that are really sick. And listen, we, we don't have any guarantee that every time we're gonna pray for the sick, they're gonna be healed. We don't have that as a guarantee, although we believe in miracles and God heals a lot of sick people. But here's what we do know. We know that as we pray for the sick, the love of God is present to meet them. So let us pray for you. So if you're sick, if you're hurting, if you need to experience the love of God, at the end of today, there's going to be time to do that. All right. Can we stand together? I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, you told us in your word that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, you won't give us a snake or a stone. That if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more so will our Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? And God, I want us to be hungry for the Holy Spirit to distribute gifts, but I want us to be even more hungry for the Holy Spirit to help our hearts cry out, Abba, Father to know your love. And I pray even right now, the places where we're tempted to only come to you as an ideal Christian, as a Christian that has it all together, I pray that today would be a moment that you would give us the courage to come to you as we really are in our need. And to hear your voice. To hear your voice to unfinished men. Nonetheless, you're my beloved son. And may that voice fuel us in seeking to grow and mature, to war against sin, to love our families. And I pray, Father, even though this was a sermon to men, I, I know that your delight in these daughters of yours in the room is without any limit. It's out it's without any boundary. And uh, how beautiful would it be if you and your sovereign power and grace would thunder to your daughters. You're my beloved daughter. That you delight in them. That you see them. So God, would you do all the things you want to do in this room? Would you meet us and form us and shape us? And as we come to this meal, would you feed us again? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.